Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. The Diaries of the Ninth President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are a collaboration between David O. McKay and his longtime secretary, Claire Middlemiss. During the day, Middlemiss would take dictation, attend meetings, handle correspondence, and listen to telephone conversations, making recordings and transcripts, and taking detailed notes. In the evening, according to her nephew, she would summarize all of this, adding excerpts from meetings of the First Presidency or Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, or details provided by one of McKay's travel companions. With his secretary's coaxing over the course of 19 years, McKay documented how he chartered a steady course through institutional storms. He demonstrates how the LDS Church and its members emerged from one century in the insular nature of the Intermountain West into the greater world, forging an uneasy accommodation with modernity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and I'm really excited to have this new guest on. It's Dr. Harvard Heath, and I'm going to talk to him about his brand new book called Confidence Amid Change, The Presidential Diaries of David O. McKay, 1951 to 1970. It's a great work, and Harvard, thanks so much for being on. We really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Great. Thanks, Harvard. So, for our listeners, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, what was your career? Sure. I um, uh, uh, raised in the Intermountain West, uh, came to BYU, uh, got my undergraduate degree, uh, took a PhD there in uh, U.S. history uh, with an emphasis in Western history. And I spent uh, uh, over two decades in the uh, special collections and archives at BYU uh, for uh, 20th century uh, Utah and Mormon history. <clears throat> okay. So how did you get interested in David O. McKay? Uh, this goes back to uh, uh, decades ago when I was uh, an undergraduate and was selected with two other uh, graduate students to help research and uh, write the centennial history of BYU from 1875 to 1975. Uh, during that process, we were given access to uh, materials at the church archives in Salt Lake City. And as part of that experience, we uh, received access to the uh, David O. McKay diaries, which uh, were rather voluminous, uh, close to 100,000 pages. And uh, I worked uh, with those sources for my 
particular assignment for BYU history. But I saw so much in there that I wanted to go back sometime. And that wasn't able to be done until uh, 20 years later when the uh, diaries uh, became available through uh, a copy of Clara Middlemiss, his secretary, who uh, recorded and and, and writ, wrote the diaries for President McKay, and through uh, her uh, nephew uh, Bob Wright, uh, they were made available to Greg Prince, who wrote a biography of um, President McKay's uh, presidential years. And then I was able to take those diaries and uh, do an abridgment of his uh, diaries from 1971 or 51 till his death in 1970. So it sounds like you had a lot of reading to do. Yeah, it was. Uh, it took a a, a number of years to uh, distill um, what I wanted to put in the abridgment. Of course, anytime you do an abridgment, you're always worried about having to be representational. That you don't want to overemphasize the exciting, uh, controversial parts to the expense of what what happened during his. Uh, daily activities, but I tried to capture uh, each year what were the most important uh, salient features of his uh, career as uh, church president, and I hope that they are uh, representational, but uh, when you do an abridgment, you always have to do some uh, cutting, and um, hopefully uh, it will at least be somewhat uh, representational of his years uh, as president of the church. So we'll see uh, how that works out in years to come. I, I do hope that uh, I do have a, an opportunity to go back and do a full text of all the diaries, which will be uh, multiple volumes. But uh, that's uh, will be a while in the future for that to get done. Yeah, just reading through it, uh, you could, there was a lot of important information in there, most of which I never knew, and it was really interesting to read. And it was it was interesting that signature books. Not only do signature books, I just got to tell everybody, the, the, the books that Signature produces are always good. But this one, it's just a beautiful binding. It's, the, it's, it's quality paper. I mean, just the books that they've produced are beautiful. And yours is no exception. And it's, it's almost 900 pages. So this, was, this is a meaty work. Yeah, I, I did uh, another book with uh, Signature some years ago. Uh, for my dissertation, I uh, did... Uh, Senator Reed Smoot, who was uh, 30 years in the Senate, and they also uh, published my book, and it was also an abridgment. And so I had some uh, experience with trying to abridge and compile uh, a lot into a little. And uh, even though it's uh, almost 900 pages, it still could be uh, much more. And I will get, I'm sure, responses back of why did you put that in or why did you leave that out? But it became a matter of space. So I I hope that. the essential things got said. I have another question. How did how did you approach signature books? So you said you've published with them prior, but how did you approach signature books with this um, with this project? Because you said it was twenty years after working at BYU. Was there some discussion to kind of publish such a big book, or was Signature open to the idea? Yeah, they were open to it. I had published uh, the uh, Smoot uh, Diaries um, before, and when I uh, got access to the McKay Diaries. Uh, I uh, had talked with Gary Bajera about that. And he was excited to, uh, to to do that. At that time, they were doing a uh, a Mormon diary series of uh, prominent uh, 
uh, LDS members, and uh, I had already done Reed Smoot, and they were uh, interested in having uh, Press McKay join that list. So that became part of that when it first got started uh, over a decade ago, and then they changed their format to a kind of a legacy series of which this book uh, is a part, but the same quality binding and paper and the same uh, editing that uh, I had previously. So they've been very good to work with. And they, like you mentioned, Daniel, they do a wonderful job of publishing uh, really good stuff uh, with quality printing. You had mentioned Claire Middlemiss, and you said that she wrote most of David McKay's diaries. Could you explain a little bit the relationship and how all that worked? Sure. Uh, Claire Middlemiss um, – <clears throat> was uh, an employee in the church uh, system back in the 1930s. And in 1935, she became President uh, David McKay's secretary. And she followed him throughout his years as a counselor in the church's first presidency. But at that time, the diaries that uh, we have extant are more like day books where he mentioned he had uh, certain meetings he attended with so-and-so, but there was no indication of what the content of the meeting was or any uh, introspection. But when he became president of the church in 1951, uh, she kind of expected that she might not be uh, kept on because they usually kept on one of the uh, male secretaries from a previous presidency. And she was kept on and she made it a point to, and make sure that from now on they would have uh, detailed diaries. And she would, uh, I think, push him to uh, dictate or, or keep a diary. And then each night she would go home and type them up. And the original diaries appear in uh, nicely uh, black bound, loose leaf binders of about three to 400 pages apiece, in which she would uh, type in. Uh, the day's activities, and then she would also uh, photocopy uh, letters that might have come to him on the particular subject mentioned in the diaries, or if there was a newspaper description of something that he was involved with, she photocopied that and put it in the diary. So it was more just his diary, but without her persistence, uh, this would never have happened. And since she never married, she kind of married uh, her life to making sure that the record uh, David O. McKay was kept in a professional and complete way. And uh, much of the introspection and detail is because of her. <clears throat> Wonderful. So do you think that some people could read your book and say, oh, well, maybe this isn't really David O. McKay's diaries. This is really Claire Middlemas speaking for him. But what would you say to somebody that would make that comment? Well, that is always the danger uh, when you have uh, somebody that close. And uh, the uh, there was some indication, I think, that uh, in years where he became ill, where he had a couple of medical emergencies, or if uh, in later years, if he was not able to do that, she would, I think, uh, maybe intercede and put th things in there that happened. And it might be in her, her voice and her words. But for most of the diary, uh, it was written by her, uh, from his dictation. And I believe that in most cases, uh, those were reviewed by President McKay, and he was uh, accepting of that. But uh, you are right, there are some indications late in his presidency in the late 1960s where he had uh, a minor stroke and might have been incapacitated for a few days, and she would uh, keep a record, and that was probably not uh, his wording. Okay. 
Well, you know, and I don't, I don't think that. By the way, he, Harvard. I was just curious to to ask you what you would what you would say to somebody who might say that because I could see some people kind of uh, say, possibly saying that. But you know what? It's no different than what Joseph, you know, the scribes of Joseph Smith and others who have written for them. I mean, these are busy people that have busy lives, so they have people that kind of help keep their personal records. Exactly. Whether it's a business or professional or the political realm, uh, staff members and secretaries. Uh, do a lot of the work, which appears to be the work of the, the particular uh, figure himself. So this is not something new or unexpected. And you're right to assume that uh, uh, there is always help in these kind of situations. And the higher up you go in the echelon of, of prominence, you have, uh, I think, the, the necessity of having people step in and help. For example, when he left uh, for some European trips and she couldn't accompany him, she would ask somebody to take notes of what happened and uh, collect all the newspaper clippings. And then when he got back, I'm sure they compared notes and entered uh, entries that reflected what happened on that particular day. Okay. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Your book just shows how, how, how history, it really is. It's an imperfect craft, but it's a really, it's a really important craft, just like any craft. I mean, there's always going to be imperfections, but what your book is showing, it's, it's the pure realities of life. And and how and you and you do a lot of uh, ex- explanations in your introduction and in your footnotes that explain those details, which I really appreciated while reading it. You were very honest throughout the entire book. Well, I think that President McKay uh, would have liked transparency. Uh, I don't think he pulled too many punches. Uh, he probably did self-edit something. I mean, he was conscious when he mentioned people who uh, came to him with a problem. He didn't uh, mention their name out of a sense of propriety, and that's understandable. But I think, by and large, uh, he didn't pull punches, and he uh, recorded things as he felt. And you'll notice at times he would get uh, a little passionate or angry about some things or adamant, and uh, that indicates to me that uh, this was an honest uh, response to how he felt about things. So, leading into that, can you tell us a little bit about David O. McKay, just for the audience who might not, who might be unfamiliar with him? Who was he, and um, basically, what are some of the most intriguing aspects of his life that you found while reading his diaries? Well, uh, what's interesting is, as I mentioned, he died in 1970. But what's amazing about him is that when he came to the uh, uh, president's presidency of the church in 1951, he was 77 years old, and he was asked to usher in an age after World War II in which the whole world, especially uh, in the United States, was entering a new phase of uh, dealing with the uh, post-war problems. And he was a man who had been steeped in, uh, well, he was born in 1873, and you, you have to realize that at the time he was born, uh, Custer's last stand hadn't occurred yet. So uh, he is uh, going way back in the late 19th century. He comes of age, uh, uh, goes to Europe as a missionary in Scotland, comes home and gets a, a degree in literature. And for all those years, uh, he, he uh, learned and, and imbibed uh, the culture and also the church culture. And probably importantly, in 1923, he took a world tour with another uh, uh, gentleman from Salt Lake, and they toured the world for a year. And that experience, I think, helped him to understand uh, the international situation and other uh, cultures and peoples. And so he, he was called in 19, early 1930s to be a counselor in the church presidency. 
under Hebrew J. Grant and then under George Albert Smith. So he came into the office in 1951, fairly well experienced in things political, things social, uh, things cultural, and things ecclesiastical. So uh, he came to the office, I think, well prepared, but uh, he was... Um, as I said, 77, and he uh, entered the uh, assignment with a, a certain robustness of of purpose. He realized that things had to change, that we had become a worldwide church, that there were new things uh, changing culturally, and he had to try and adapt the church to the modern world. And it was a, a difficult, but uh, I think a task that he equipped himself quite well with. You touched on this uh, on a lot of points. It sounds like obviously David O. McKay would be an interesting subject for uh, scholars of Mormonism to study. But just in the broad realm of American religion, why would people? Why should uh, scholars and people interested in that subject be interested in David O. McKay? Well, I think that he, uh, in many ways, uh, he broke a, a chain of, of uh, cultural things that had occurred prior to his. A rise to the presidency. For example, uh, he was the ninth president of the church. Now, prior to that, the the uh, first uh, four presidents of the church had been part of the founding fathers of Mormonism: uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Wilfrey Woodruff, Renzo Snow. And then the next two presidents of the church were uh, kind of blue blood uh, Mormons with a uh, a foot deep in a church. Uh, bloodlines. And President McKay was an obscure young man born in an obscure little farming community in Utah called Huntsville and didn't have any of these uh, cultural or uh, social contacts that uh, were present with previous presidents. And so he comes kind of out of nowhere, uh, one of the first presidents to get an an education and became quite literate. Uh, He loved literature, loved poetry, and he also had a fairly good grip on cultural trends that were transpiring uh, during the Great Depression and World War II. And uh, I think that uh, for people who want to understand religion in the American West and in in the nation, uh, realize that President McKay cut quite an impressive swath from uh, his humble beginnings. For example, in his own state of Utah, he was well, well respected and uh, renowned for his uh, his uh, transparency, his literacy, uh, his uh, understanding of people, and that extended beyond uh, the Utah borders into the Air Mountain West. And then uh, gradually, uh, when his uh, uh, member of the Quorum of the Twelve, Ezra Taft Benson, became the Secretary of Agriculture under President Eisenhower, uh, President McKay became a guest of the White House on a few occasions, and they really hit it off, and President Eisenhower always commented on what a uh, powerful and influential figure he was in American religion. And then on his uh, death, uh, there were some contacts with uh, Richard Dixon, but before that was the um, important contact with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. They were two rather different individuals. David O. McKay, a very conservative Republican, uh, Lyndon, B. John- Lyndon B. Johnson, a, a liberal Democrat uh, who had uh, a different view on a number of issues. And you'd think they'd be uh, strange bedfellows, but they met on a couple of occasions and uh, President McKay endeared himself to President Johnson. And President Johnson uh, would uh, 
call in for questions he might have for his counsel and opinion on. And then at times he would come back to Washington, D.C., meet with President Johnson at his request. And there's one interesting account when he was flying back from a uh, political uh, event in Los Angeles, did back to Washington, D.C. He had his pilot a touchdown in Salt Lake so he could stop by and say hi to his good friend, David L. McKay. So he had that kind of relationship with, with presidents up until his death. So why were the pres- So why was Eisenhower and Johnson? Why were they interested in David O. McKay? Why Why did they want to be friends with him? Why did they want to talk with him about policy matters? When they When they met him for the first time, they found him well read, and there was a certain charisma about him that kind of demanded respect and attention. Uh, he was a rather imposing figure. He was a large man uh, who had this this uh, uh, beautiful white flowing hair, and was just a very handsome man. And in his presence. The way he talked and what he talked about and how he said it impressed people. And uh, both Eisenhower and Johnson thought, here's a man of substance, and we want to listen to what he has to say. And, of course, uh, there's always the uh, attempt at an embellishment and trying to uh, read more into it than uh, what appears in print or in the diaries or other places. But it is uh, very evident that it was a sincere, genuine, authentic relationship between these men, and not just with uh, these two presidents, but with other uh, government officials and even international figures. Uh, many diplomats and ambassadors would come to pay uh, their respects to President McKay. And uh, he was uh, becoming well-known as a man of deep religious uh, uh, stature, and uh, his talks seemed to, at that time, kind of reflect the best of, of American culture and what it stood for with its values. So I think that uh, uh, even even uh, liberals like President Johnson found something to, to like and see in him, but of course, uh, uh, the culturally conservative found in him an ally. Yeah, so David, David McKay was a uh... Influential figure not only for the not only for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, but in a way he he played a, a prominent national role as well, even though it was just kind of in the shadows. But still, and I want to say in the shadows, but he he talked with these presidents and offered them advice and was friends with them. So that does you know allow some merit to study him on a broader level within American culture. Yeah, I don't want to overblow that uh, they uh, they were frequently uh, in touch every every month or so. But uh, there was definitely was a contact and appreciation uh, by uh, prominent uh, not only uh, political leaders but business leaders and uh, university academics. Because uh, again, President McCain not only had this deep uh, spiritual uh, stature, but he was uh, well read and very uh, a very literate person who could talk with uh, people about culture, literature, politics, uh, social mores, uh, international situations. So uh, being well-informed and respected uh, made the relationships uh, seem really important, and they were for a person of that time uh, from a place in Utah where there wasn't much uh, national exposure to uh, church leaders. Yeah, interesting. So, Harvard, what were some of the most – what were some of the most important developments in the church under David O. McKay? Well, uh, the first thing that became apparent, well, there's actually two major things that uh, I think stand out. One is his desire to see the church be less provincial, less parochial, and really reach out and become an international church. So he was the first church president to erect the uh, uh, temples, the, the sacred uh, 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 temples that the church has. Uh, 
in London and in uh, Switzerland, and uh, also uh, wanted to establish a stronger uh, church presence in all the world and uh, encouraged, again, uh, members to stay home and build up their churches in the area. So he had a very strong international bent, and, and as, a, as a man at his age, uh, went to South Africa and the Pacific and uh, uh, Europe uh, and traveled extensively to show uh, the members of the church and uh, others that he was interested in the new international outreach. And secondly, uh, which is important, is that uh, he placed a high value on education. And although the church, uh, the state of Utah had uh, two really good uh, educational institutions, he promoted uh, Brigham Young University at a time when it was nothing more than kind of a glorified uh, junior college. And through uh, his impetus, his funding, his encouragement, uh, in with President uh, Ernest Wilkinson, they built uh, BYU from a small student body of 5,000 uh, no graduate programs uh, and not much of a physical campus. To by the time he died, they had uh, it was a, uh, the, the uh, attendance had gone up to over 25,000. Uh, they had a number of graduate programs uh, instigated, and the campus physical plant. Uh, must have increased by, by 10 times. So uh, his really, uh, I think, uh, claim to fame was what he did for education uh, at BYU and then throughout the church, emphasizing the need for education and encouraged uh, students to get an education anywhere they could and to constantly have a, uh, a sense that learning was always important and it, it was never ending. And his talks, his encouragement, all seem to support the idea that education is essential for a man and woman to have if they're to research full potential. Interesting. So did you, when you were doing your research with uh, Wilkinson for the first hundred years of Brigham Young University, the, the history book, is that what you found with David O. McKay? Is that kind of where you kind of realized this aha moment that really what BYU has become, which is now, you know, a a, a very well-known, world-renowned university. A lot of that stems from McKay's efforts to make that happen. Yeah, I believe that uh, two people, uh, David O. McKay and Ernest L. Wilkinson, because we must realize that at the time the church uh, coming out of the out of the war years uh, didn't have a lot of money, and uh, the money was mostly spent in building chapels and providing uh, the services the church needed to have, and so funds were very uh, in short supply. And so when President Wilson began to ask for increased funding, uh, most of the uh, board of trustees and those in Salt Lake felt that this was a waste of money because we have two tax-supported universities here in the state. So why would we want to take church funds and bring in another university when we already had two? And so uh, during the 1950s, it was very tough sledding because President Wilson would go before the board and make a proposal for a new building, uh, more faculty, enlarge the student body, and he would get voted down. And then it became apparent to President Wilson that he had to go to President McKay. And so behind uh, the board's back, he would go to President McKay's office and say, uh, today we had a meeting, I got voted down, uh, it's not gonna happen. Uh, President McKay would say, don't worry, Ernest, I'll take care of it. And uh, that was good because that built the campus, but it was bad for President Wilkinson because after a decade or so, he was uh, not very well liked by 
many of the board of trustee members. And so it's no coincidence that when President McKay died in 1970 in January, uh, President Wilson left shortly thereafter. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off oh wow i didn't know that and what about byu hawaii i I saw in the diaries that david o mckay he had something to do with that as well yeah he was uh when he made the world tour back in the early 1920s uh he uh really enjoyed the pacific uh islands uh and the church had a had always had a strong presence for those since the 1850s in Hawaii, and then uh, later on in, in, in the uh, Samoa and Tonga, Fiji, and other places. And he uh, had a special uh, affinity for the Polynesian people. And so he spent a disproportionate amount of time going there, and he wanted to see uh, the uh, members of the church in the Pacific, greater Pacific, have an opportunity to come to school somewhere where they could um, could go without having the problems and expenses of coming to, to Utah. So he encouraged the uh, Church College of Hawaii and uh, was one of their staunch supporters and helped fund it and set it up. And um, without his support and funding, I'm not sure how well that would have fared. Well, since we're on education, this is another thing I found interesting in the diaries was uh, McKay's efforts to support the correlation department. Could you explain to us uh, why did why was McKay why was he so uh, in support of the correlation department, and what exactly is the correlation department for people who might not know what that is? Well, yeah, I uh, I I might have uh, uh, not uh, done a very good job of uh, explaining that because correlation was an attempt. Uh, the church, under his uh, first few years, uh, doubled and, and and grew in size that uh, made uh, the church uh, such an entity that uh, it was hard to administer the church programs under the current old decades-long uh, programs and policies. So there was an effort uh, to to centralize that or correlate that. And this largely, I think, was under the uh, impetus of uh, Harold B. Lee, who became a president of the church uh, two years after, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, two years after President McKay's death. And he was really the pusher for this. And President McKay was caught kind of in a a bind. He uh, saw the need to have greater centralization. But on the other hand, he was a strong advocate of agency and freedom freedom of the mind, freedom to conduct one's life to how he wanted or she wanted without any constraints uh, by 
uh, a central organization. So he wanted to preserve as much as he could the personal nature of church government. But on the other hand, he realized he had to correlate or bring things under control. For example, instead of having each uh, particular region uh, tend to have uh, their own ways of doing things, he wanted to have uh, lessons and programs centralized so everybody throughout the world was doing the same thing at the same time. And so church correlation came in in the uh, early 1960s. And um, I think President Kay was happy about that in some respects, but I think he also missed uh, the uh, creativity and the, uh, uh, the opportunity for individuals to make a difference without a bureaucracy. And the church's bureaucracy uh, really uh, grew uh, out of proportion to what it was when it first started. And with bureaucracy, you get more centralization, but you get uh, a lack of creativity in uh, the old days of having uh, individuals. For example, uh, when they used to have uh, church uh, lesson manuals written for Sunday school or young men and young women's, especially Sunday school, they would uh, ask a person to write it, usually a person of some uh, renown and experience in education. But with correlation, they're done kind of anonymously by by committees, and uh, they've become more so since his death. And I think President McKay uh, kind of rued that necessity because he he would prefer to have uh, more creativity, more individuality. So I think it was a tension. He saw the need; something had to be done, but he wasn't sure how far he wanted to go with that. And of course, after he he died, uh, the bureaucracy and correlation. Uh, uh, really uh, accelerated. Okay. Now, I've heard also that under McKay's leadership, the church grew leaps and bounds. So maybe correlation could have been out of necessity too, because everything was growing so rapidly? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was because you, often today you hear about correlation and how things sometimes have to go through correlation with the church. And I just never realized that it, it, it really, the big push was with McKay. And that's another thing I found fascinating about your book. Well, I think McKay got. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I indicated that he uh, saw the need for something to be done, and so he he approved what was happening with correlation because it was it was a necessity. But on the other hand, he had some misgivings about it, and uh, this comes out uh, later on in some of the diaries where he, he doesn't uh, come out and uh, denounce correlation because he knows it was necessary, but he wishes we could somehow not go quite so far. Uh, for example, he, he liked the uh, opportunity to have people who, who he liked to write manuals. And in the 50s and uh, uh, 60s, uh, qualified, competent educators wrote wonderful manuals for the church. And they put their name on it, and they stood by what they, they said. And uh, President Kay, in some cases, uh, asked them to write them. And in some cases, when the uh, the review board uh, reviewed the manuscripts, uh, President McKay would, would okay them, but uh, he enjoyed doing that. And now uh, we don't have uh, that kind of uh, uh, supervision uh, over those kind of things because with the church's growth, uh, we have a large bureaucracy that handles uh, committees that handle these kind of things. So uh, it's a it's a, a give and take, and I'm not sure. Uh, in my own, I mean, I just, I'm just uh, making a, a guess here. I would think the president might not be uh, happy 
50 years later, uh, how we became uh, so correlated that we've have lost uh, some important things that we uh, might have kept. For example, the Relief Society, the Women's Society of the Church was kept independent, and uh, with correlation, uh, they lost their status, and then they became correlated. And that's kind of the uh, buzzword, uh, being correlated, uh, being uh, forced to conform to uh a centralized idea or program. So uh, with all its many advantages, there are some disadvantages. And President McKay was well aware of that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the, there are sweet little uh, pieces of information all throughout the diaries that mention that. And I, I just thought that was a, a really interesting point of your book. So thanks for talking more about that, Harvard. I appreciate it. As, as I'm learning more right now while, as you're talking. I have another important thing that your diaries talk about that I really enjoyed was uh, McKay's complicated understanding of race. Uh, Greg Prince in his biography of David McKay talks about this quite a bit, but I felt like your book is a great um, addition and a partner to that book because you really get to read McKay's words and his thought processes on this and just the kind of the inner workings of the meetings that he's having with the apostles and the presidency and trying to understand that. I mean, even in your introduction, you, you even state that uh, McKay had one foot in the past and another in the future. And can you explain a little bit more about McKay's understanding of race and how that evolved over time and through his presidency? Yeah, uh, President McKay uh, one time stated, "The Lord can can make uh, the prophet, but he can he can't unmake the man." And no matter how hard we try, we are sometimes constrained by our by our cultural environment. And President McKay. Uh, having been born in the uh, 19th century and came to maturity in the early 20th century, uh, he imbibed the culture uh, of his time. And uh, one of the concerns I have about our present day historiography is uh, it seems like the younger generation wants to invoke the idea of presentism. Why can't people of the past be as lightened as we are now? How foolish and, and uh, erroneous could they be to think that they can't grasp these these obvious self-evident ideas about uh, man, culture, and race. And race had always been a problem, still is in American uh, society. And President McKay, uh, I think, uh, came to the presidency with a a sense that all children were uh, brothers and sisters. But he also uh, was caught in a culture which uh, race seemed to be uh, a problem he couldn't, for example, let me just go back. People said, why didn't President McKay uh, accept and, and uh, uh, bring in uh, the, the current views of, of race in terms of equality and so forth? Uh, why did he lag behind with the rest of American culture? And I, I, I think that uh, it's possible to, to reconcile that with the fact that President McKay was raised in a culture in which uh, especially uh, African-Americans were uh, held as less than equal, although he didn't consider them uh, that way. That's the way culture treated them. And so when he came into the presidency, there were still uh, sociological and and uh, political and religious reasons why many people in the U.S., not just uh, Mormons, there were, I mean, Catholics and Protestants, still espoused equality among uh, all citizens in the country, but 
there was this, this but involved. We would prefer that uh, you marry within the race because sociologically studies showed that the people who married in the same culture were more successful, these kind of things. Uh, although today we look back and, and wonder uh, how could we possibly entertain those kind of notions. But that was the culture in which President McKay was raised. But he, he realized that things were changing and uh, the uh, civil rights had started. And uh, President McKay was uh, concerned about how that would be, um, how it would affect the church. And of course, these were times when we had the uh, strong partisan uh, right and left. Uh, we had the activists uh, who were doing things. And then we had some leaders, unfortunately, who took these strong, uh, I guess, right wing stands on, on race and culture. And that helped uh, color uh, what the church seemed to be projecting. And I think President McKay was unfairly uh, judged as part of that movement, which uh, people saw in the civil rights movement, like in the South, uh, uh, cultural problems. And this was a a, uh, a partisan time when many no, uh, in the right wing uh, groups began to see uh, civil rights as, as not beneficial. And uh, it's no secret that the uh, uh, Democrats lost the South in, in the uh, political realm because of civil rights. And Utah uh, was uh, a state which um, probably could have done better with civil rights, but President McKay had no uh, problems or concerns with with race except his cultural uh, environment and upbringing he had. So I uh, think he was conflicted with that and wanted to do better, and he did uh, try and do better, but to expect him to uh, cast off all the Things he had learned his last seven decades, and and uh, and be a night or twenty uh, fifteen uh, uh, person who understands these things like we do now is a bit much to ask for a man who was at that time, and and he was not by himself uh, in these in these views. I think American culture was uh, kind of in that same environmental uh, dilemma. Yeah, he was certainly a man of his time. As you're pointing out, uh, what I found interesting was he kept mentioning throughout his diaries, he kept describing the situation and uh, comparing it to the uh, scriptural story of the Apostle Peter being told that the gospel should go to the Gentiles. And Peter is having this um, this dilemma and this kind of personal angst within himself as to whether that should happen. And then God gives him that vision, you know, about the animals, you know, under Jewish law, they weren't supposed to eat and God tells him to eat and how David McKay is basically comparing himself and the growth of the church to this. And he's, you kind of see this uh, spiritual and moral battle within McKay. And that's what I really loved about your diaries is he's trying to grapple with the 12 and having these open conversations saying, I feel like this is we're a comparable moment in time where we're dealing with the same issue is, you know, we've been taught for almost for quite a long time that, you know, African-Americans uh, or who, people who have, you know, black African descent can't hold the priesthood, but yet he, these people in Africa want to join the church. So he's having these, these, these moral wrestlings. And I thought that was very human. And I, you know, even though people today might not agree with it and say, Oh my gosh, how terrible it is. That, that he even thought that your diary shows the the inner struggle that McKay had, and I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, he was troubled by that, and there's no doubt that uh, that's something he wrestled with. And uh, in our present day, may Lou, the people say, "Well, uh, why why can't he? He's supposed to be an astute, uh, inspired leader. Uh, surely 
couldn't you see through that and make major changes? But I don't think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Daniel, uh, in the case of Peter and Paul, uh, you think Peter would have known better, and Paul, a convert, had to uh, confront Peter face-to-face in Jerusalem and tell him that uh, you're off base, that's wrong. Uh, this is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well. So you, you think, uh, uh, well, you know, in, in the world of biblical literature, uh, if uh, those leaders couldn't get it right, how do we expect current uh, leaders of churches to to get it right when uh, uh, these have always been problems that uh, seem to be uh, complicated? And today it doesn't seem so complicated. Back then it was very complicated. And President McKay uh, uh, wrestled with that to the point that uh, uh, he, I think, uh, went back and forth. And he didn't have a lot of support. Uh, uh, President Hubie Brown was his main main support. In um, uh, giving greater credence to uh, the need to, to make changes, but he had a very conservative leadership base who were still caught up in the 1950s and 60s uh, views of, of race. So I appreciate uh, a chance to explain that because I think that uh, uh, it's not something that he took lightly or shrugged off. He was deeply concerned about that. Yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. It's it's really interesting stuff. And another thing I found really interesting about the diaries, and I, I kept laughing, and I could see a lot of people just, again, interested in American religion, American history in general, McKay's biting comments against communism. And I, 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 thought, I thought maybe you could give us kind of a background from what you know. What do you know about McKay and his, his angst and his anger against communism? Because it seemed like he really was a, a very American boy, American man, and that he really did not like the Soviets or, or did not like the ideals of communism. Yeah, that was a. Uh, as you mentioned, the diary has frequent mention of communism, and um, he decried it as one of the great evils in the world. And his primary uh, complaint of communism was his constant uh, repetition of the idea of agency and freedom that every man should have a right to think and act with freedom without any. Uh, social or political uh, restraints, and he he was bothered by the communist uh, propaganda that had uh, suppressed human rights. And of course, he uh, was uh, almost fifty when the Bolshevik Revolution occurred. And of course, at that time in nineteen twenties, there was this uh, honeymoon with the Soviets that they were the new um, world order that they would usher in equality and peace. And all would be wonderful. And then um, during the 1930s, um, when uh, word leaked out, but, but not uh, to a great extent, of the uh, Stalin purges, later they became uh, more apparent after the World War II. Uh, it only further reinforced his view that communism was destructive and, if not uh, somehow restrained, uh, there would be serious concerns. Now, some of his brethren uh, felt that um, uh, it was serious, but not as serious as he uh, thought it was. It was, And uh, he was also uh, a strong proponent of uh, the intervention against the Nazis uh, in World War II, and some uh, felt that we should be more pacifistic about it. But President Kay was always very strongly uh, patriotic about uh, 
taking a stand against tyrannies. So after World War II, uh, when the communists began to uh, invade Eastern Europe, he became concerned about that. And uh, it was decided of agency how suppression was something that was antithetical to what uh, Jesus taught in the New Testament and that had to be confronted at all costs. And interestingly enough, uh, uh, although uh, some of his, one of his colleagues uh, at the time, Secretary of Agriculture, Ezra Jeff Benson, seemed to have some uh, sympathy with, with McCarthyism, not McCarthy himself, but the anti-communist rhetoric, uh, President McKay didn't buy into the McCarthy approach to things, but thought that communism was a serious problem. So during the 60s, uh, when uh, it became uh, more uh, serious with the Berlin Wall and the uh, crushing of the Hungarian and Czech revolutions, uh, he became more incensed at what they were doing to, to people in the subjugation. So his uh, voice against communism uh, grew and grew to the point where by the time of his death, uh, he thought that uh, we need to take every measure possible to thwart their growth and find ways to eradicate the idea of uh, coercive action against people uh, who lost all their right to, to think and, and be free. And of course, he knew their religion could not flourish in, in tyrannies. And that was another reason why he fought it, because he thought communism was uh, antithetical towards religion. And uh, another reason why he fought it so hard. But you're right, uh, throughout his entire presidency, uh, there was a strong anti-communist bent that uh, expressed itself uh, almost um, every year in his diaries. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder. I mean, I, of course, this is total speculation, but it kind of makes me wonder if maybe that's why he had another reason why Eisenhower and Johnson liked McKay so much was that, you know, they're, they're having this, you know, during the Cold War, they're having this battle with the Soviets and McKay could have sympathized with that as well. And Eisenhower, I know, was look, you know, he was a spiritual man and was looking for spiritual guidance. And I could see potentially McKay and Eisenhower kind of, you know, agreeing on on some of these you know major points of uh, beliefs yeah they 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 had shared a common uh, experience in the uh, 20s and 30s uh, uh mckay was very uh astute on following the social international political issues of, the, of his day both in america and uh in europe uh, and the far east and uh, they both saw what had happened and both felt strongly that uh, we need to thwart that. So uh, President McKay would, would support uh, anybody who would stand up to them. And Eisenhower uh, and, and Truman, uh, to that extent, also uh, uh, fought communism. So, uh, And I think the church, uh, as a general membership, tended to become increasingly conservative under President McKay. And one of the planks of being that type of uh, political conservative was that you were a very strongly anti-communist. Okay. So I, I could see that being interest. I can see that being of interest for people who are interested in political history and the rise of seeing why Utah and, uh, you know, people who are members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, why they're so conservative. And you can kind of see those underpinnings even under McKay's presidency. Yeah. I think the, I think the Intermountain West as a whole and, and at that time, but a part of California was, was caught in that conservative uh, political grip where they uh, sought to fight anything that tended to uh, mitigate the values that American society felt about uh, things they held dear in their Christian tradition and communism and uh, of course, Nazism uh, seemed to go against that. So uh, this was kind of a, I'm not sure that uh, David McKay was out of line with 
the contemporary culture. In fact, I think he was in the forefront of that. And at that time, uh, throughout those years, I think uh, Lawrence Sager of the country uh, had those sympathetic views uh, towards fighting communism and maintaining agency. And of course, we uh, have to understand that there was this constant fear of, of nuclear war and, and that this was a life and death struggle. So those kind of things made the uh, tension uh, even higher and uh, more pronounced. This is this is really fascinating stuff, Harvard. Thank you. Another question I have for you is, why do you think? So you had touched on this earlier in your um, in our conversation, but I wanted to kind of expand on it a little bit more. Why do you think the church grew so fast and so uh, so large under uh, McKay's uh, presidency? Which I mean, his presidency, I guess, you know, it's it's twenty twenty one years long. It's it's not. It, it, I mean, I would say that's a fairly long presidency, but within a matter of two decades, the church, I think it – doesn't it almost triple in size? Yeah, a little more than that. Yeah, uh, well, the uh, the church, uh, uh, if you uh, go back and, and there's been a number of uh, studies by sociologists, uh, both uh, Mormon sociologists and non-Mormon. Rodney Stark, for example, wrote a number of articles in the, in the uh 1980s and 90s about the uh, meteoric, the, excuse me, the, the rise of the Mormon uh, membership, and he attributed it to a number of factors. But the church had been uh, after World War One, uh, the missionary work had been curtailed because of the war, and the church was uh, slow in getting uh, missionaries back in Europe and other places, and then. Uh, you had the the Great Depression hit, which really really uh, caused the church issues because they were just trying to survive and keep members uh, with food and clothing. And then uh, as that uh, moves on in the late thirties, then you have the the haunting specter of of Nazi Germany, and then war breaks out, and so the church has this kind of twenty years, twenty five years of where uh, they're stymied. Uh, by these uh, events outside their control, and the church uh, basically stays pretty static in terms of its membership. Then after the war, uh, people are coming back from the war, um, GI Bill, and people are getting educated, and then also the the missionary force began to increase. And then President uh, McKay came out with a famous slogan, uh, every member a missionary. And the idea was that the message of the church uh, needed to be uh, given to people by example and by precept with neighbors and friends and referrals. And then the the missionary force uh, rose uh, from you know a couple thousand into thousands. And uh, each year under his presidency, uh, more missionaries went out. The number of missions increased, and it was not too hard to, 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 to sense that with this renewed energy uh, of his impetus to missionary work, plus the fact that he now established, as I mentioned before, the International Church, the uh, missions in Europe and elsewhere uh, in the Far East uh, expanded, and then the, the missionary work and members in uh, the United States also uh, really accelerated. And one of the reasons for that was prior to uh, the post-war period, uh, for these 20 years of depression and war, 25 years, uh, members were 
living mostly along what we call the, the Mormon corridor from southeast Idaho through Utah down to Arizona, maybe a little bit into Colorado and Arizona and, and some places in California. But after the war, people who had, who had left to go to war or to find work during the war left this Intermountain region and went back east, south, California, and all of a sudden you had members who were living everywhere in the United States. So when you had places which had no no membership or no no uh, congregations, they now had thousands and thousands in areas that never been before. So when you have that kind of growth, uh, people in areas which had never been penetrated by the ideas of, of the church were now there and uh, combined member referrals and work and the increased missionary numbers. Uh, it was no surprise that uh, the church grew hundreds of thousands during this period and millions. Wow. Again, uh, I'm talking with Dr. Harvard Heath. He, pr- he has produced this great edition. Uh, it's called Confidence Amid Change, The Presidential Diaries of David O. McKay, 1951 to 1970. It's a great, another quality book published by Signature Books. And Harvard, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, before I let you go, uh, can I ask you, what are you working on now? What can we expect to learn from you in the future? Well, uh, I, I'm going to try and get uh, do a full text of uh, David O. McKay. I'm becoming an old man, so my energy levels aren't quite what they used to be. And with uh, added responsibilities of, of uh, grandparents and other things, I'm not quite as productive as they used to be. But I have a few, a few projects I, I want to uh, embark upon. And I think this is safe to say that uh, – there's never been a time in uh, Mormon church history where there's been so much being done and written and researched. This is really the golden age of Mormon studies, and uh, it's really quite remarkable. And uh, I hope I can make a small contribution, but uh, every every week it seems like a new book, a new article comes out, which uh, which causes uh, deeper comprehension and understanding. And this is a wonderful time to uh, study and research religious history. Yeah, thank you, and and your book is definitely no exception to that. It's 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 really wonderful, and I'm 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 happy to own it. So thank you so much for uh, working on it for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VGW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus